Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the big story continues to be the historic public demonstrations against police racism and violence. There's a lot of learning going on. Hopefully some of what's being learned is how much over-policing and violent policing have to do with the so-called war on drugs, which serves as a pretext for much of the harassment of individuals and entire communities of black and brown people. We've talked about that with Maritza Perez, director of the Office of National Affairs at Drug Policy Alliance. Also on the show, as the federal and many state governments push to force a reopening of the economy, despite the fact that the coronavirus is not under control, corporations and many Republicans are pushing to ensure that if anyone forced to work or live in conditions made unsafe gets sick, they have no recourse for accountability. It's just as outrageous as it sounds, and we talk about it with Remington Gregg, Counsel for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights at Public Citizen. That's all coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. As Derek Chauvin crushed the life out of George Floyd, one of his colleagues said to appalled onlookers, don't do drugs, kids. The police who broke into Breonna Taylor's home and killed her say their no-knock warrant was related to drugs. U.S. law enforcement can be violent and racist, even without the so-called war on drugs, but it often provides pretext for their actions. And reading that a victim of police brutality was on drugs can put an asterisk on the story for many. Understanding the use of the war on drugs should be part of our general understanding of law enforcement's war on black and brown people. Maritza Perez is director of the Office of National Affairs at the Drug Policy Alliance. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Maritza Perez. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, let's get right into it. Drug Policy Alliance released a statement this week on the new piece of police reform legislation in Congress, the Justice in Policing Act. How much do you think the act as is would do in reality on the ground, and what won't it do that's still needed? So first we'll start off by saying that the act does have some really good elements to it. The first time that we would have legislation around creating a national use of force standard, also around data collection, the first time we would have a national database keeping track of police misconduct, also use of force incidents. There are other things in there like banning chokeholds, which is great. So, you know, there are things in the bill that that are good, but the bill is still lacking in areas, specifically in areas that are related to the drug war, which is why we haven't been able to fully support the bill. You know, on one hand, we, we definitely appreciate the Congress's taking a hard look at police reform. This is one of those areas in Congress that is always really, really hard to move on for a number of reasons. So the fact that they even have a bill a comprehensive bill at that is a feat, but we also think that this moment and this opportunity requires something that is much bolder. So some things that we have specifically said that we need to change about the bill are around the war on drugs. For instance, the bill does provide a ban on no-knock warrants, which, as you said in this segment uh, before this interview, you know that's what happened in Breonna Taylor's case. 
she was shot while she was sleeping in her own bed, the officers who came to her home had a search warrant in the form of a no-knock warrant, which means that they didn't have to notify Brianna that they were on the premises, didn't have to notify folks about their intent before ramming into the home. You know, no-knock warrants are actually really prevalent. Thousands are issued every year. It's actually really easy to get signed off from a judge on a no-knock warrant. Usually they're used in the context of drugs. So the officers will just have to say that, you know, we think that if we give notice, our lives will be in danger or people will dispose of the evidence or the drugs. So it's very rare that a judge will not sign off on a no-knock warrant. And they're often used in SWAT deployments, which just makes it even more deadly. And it's certainly a deadly combination. So the bill does prohibit no-knock warrants. However, it doesn't also prohibit quick-knock warrants, which are legally slightly different from a no-knock warrant. But in practice, it's the same thing. It's the police officer's barging into your home before you have any idea of what's happening, before you can respond, before you have time to react. And this is what leads to deadly incidents. This practice is not just deadly for civilians, although it is definitely more deadly for civilians than police officers, but it, it also affects law enforcement because officers have lost their lives using these types of warrants. Why? Because if somebody barges into your home, your, your, your first thought is going to be that it's somebody trying to break in. So you might try to retaliate. So we think it's very important, especially in drug cases, that officers announce their presence and give the occupants time to answer the door to avoid death. So one thing that we've been pushing for with this bill is to include quick-knock warrants in the prohibition around no-knock warrants. Something else that we think is missing from the bill is the fact that this bill attempts to reform the Department of Defense's 1033 program. The 1033 program is a program that's been around for approximately 30 years at this point. It allows the Department of Defense to transfer military-grade equipment to local and state police departments. I think the public really became aware of this program around the time of the Michael Brown protests in Ferguson. I think people were really just astonished to see that local law enforcement had access to uh, things like tanks, riot gear, the types of things that you think you would see in a war zone, not in a community or in a neighborhood. But, you know, the reason that law enforcement has this is because over the years, this program has allowed billions, more than $7 billion worth of equipment to get transferred to local and state departments. This program is also notorious for being mismanaged. In fact, a couple of years ago, the Government Accountability Office conducted a report and review of the program, and they actually created a fake law enforcement agency and were able to get military-grade equipment from the program pretending to be like this non-existent law enforcement agency. So that just kind of paints a picture of how little managed and how much little oversight there is of this program, which is scary because, again, it's military equipment going into the hands of police officers and who knows who else. The bill does include reform around the program, but we don't think reform is enough. We think that the program needs to be abolished. You know, one reason that law enforcement can make a case for getting this equipment is saying that they are conducting counter-narcotics investigations. The bill would take that piece out, but law enforcement would still be able to get the equipment through other ways, including saying that, you know, they are conducting counterterrorism investigations. That could be another way to get this equipment. Our concern is that the equipment would still go to them and that it would still be used against people. And that's what we don't want. You know, and I, I do want to point out that military equipment and no-knock warrants are super tied. I mentioned before that no-knock warrants are often used in conjunction with SWAT raids. The police will often use 
quick knock, no knock warrants during SWAT deployments, specifically during drug investigations, disproportionately against people of color in drug investigations. So we really think that reform won't save the program. The program needs to be done away with. We just need to put an end to militarized policing. And then lastly, you know, what we think the bill fails to do is just really reimagine what public safety can look like. It's still relying on federal funding to encourage police officers and law enforcement to do the right thing. It's still saying, well, if you do these things, if you implement these policies, we won't take away your funding. But ultimately, it's still diverting resources to law enforcement. And in fact, there are other areas within the bill that give law enforcement money to implement some of these rules. It's not just like being used as a stick saying like, well, we'll take your money if you don't do this. It's also like, we'll give you money so you can do X, Y, and Z. And I think that Congress really needs to listen to people on the ground who are saying, now is the time where we need to divest from law enforcement and invest in our communities. Invest in things that actually create public safety and create safe communities. Things like quality education, things like jobs and living wages, things like safe and affordable housing, things like harm reduction. If we're talking about people who use drugs, I think a better investment would be in harm reduction services and programs for people who really need them. That would save lives. That would reduce violence. I think this bill really does fail to imagine what public safety could look like. That's our biggest problem with it. They're not listening to people on the ground. And, you know, we're trying to just help Congress think through what people are actually asking. They're not saying fund police right now. In fact, they're saying the opposite. They're saying invest in our communities. This bill doesn't go far enough. So unfortunately, as the bill currently is written, we cannot throw our support behind it. We hope that in the coming days, Congress gets the bill to a place where we could support, because like I said, there are a lot of good things in the bill. There are some good things in there, and Congress hasn't acted on police reform in quite some time. So this is a really great opportunity, but we think they should seize the moment and really push for something bold. The moment today requires bold action, and this bill is just not it. Well, let me ask you also, I think that some people think, well, you know, cannabis is legal now, you know, is the war on drugs really still happening? You know, I think they, they, they imagine there's been a sea change in that. When you're answering how the war on drugs fits in the overall picture of police racism and of over-policing, how do you explain it to people? Like that it's still going on just because you can go to the dispensary and get some pot doesn't mean that people are not still being um, policed and, and harmed by, by law enforcement under the guise of a war on drugs. You know, I think that's one reason that we actually have for a long time been saying that we need to think beyond marijuana legalization and we need to think about all drug decriminalization, because as long as we criminalize Things that are low level, one, and then things that a lot of people turn to for survival, for example, drug selling or sex work, those are things that some people do just to survive. And as long as those things remain criminalized, it's giving police cover to go after black and brown people for things that are crimes on the books, even though they may not be harming anybody, even though the crime may not be a threat to public safety. The fact that we even have criminal laws on the books and a number of criminal laws will always disproportionately hurt minority communities, people of color, because we feel the brunt of police enforcement. So we need to chip away at all of those things that really we need to ask ourselves, is this actually something that will, that needs to be criminalized, that will actually endanger public safety? And if the answer is that it won't, then we should take it off the books because we need to make sure that they don't have excuses to continue to harass 
and target our communities because it's just going to continue to happen. I think what you said earlier about, you know, marijuana being legalized, you can go to a dispensary. I think, unfortunately, like, people just have different experiences in America based on your skin color. I think if, if you're white and you don't experience police harassment, you might think marijuana legalization did it, right? I can go get my weed from a store and things are fine. Nobody's harassing me. The data says something different. Like, even if you look at states that have legalized marijuana, the people who are still being disproportionately arrested for marijuana activity, the people who are still being cited are black and brown people, the people who feel the brunt of all police enforcement. So I think we should all just be committed to just decriminalizing things, getting things off the books if we really want to help communities of color. But also we just need to rethink law enforcement. I mean, do we really think it's a good use of taxpayer resources to throw somebody in jail or give somebody a, a life record for smoking marijuana, something that's like legal in most states at this point. So it's a good question and, and something that we should reconsider. I think policing is a good start, but I think we also just need to continue to chip away at criminal justice and uh, have a conversation about criminal justice reform. We've been speaking with Maritza Perez of the Drug Policy Alliance. You can follow their work online at drugpolicy.org. Thank you so much, Maritza Perez, for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. The U.S. now has more than 2 million confirmed coronavirus cases. Health officials will tell you the real number is doubtless much higher. At least 113,000 people have died. The pandemic is far from under control, but that isn't stopping the White House and many states from pushing to fully reopen, even as we see places that have reopened reporting increases in hospitalizations. But wait, there's more. As millions try to weigh the safety risk of returning to work with the economic cost of not doing so, there's a push, led in Congress by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, to grant corporations legal immunity from liability for any harms workers may suffer from being forced back into workplaces that are unsafe. We're joined now by Remington Craig, Counsel for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights at Public Citizen. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Remington Craig. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, I want to ask, are they serious? But we know they are. Are we missing something, or is it that basic that if a person's job requires them, for example, to work in close quarters with other people or doesn't provide masks or sanitizer, and that person gets sick with COVID-19, there'd be no way for them to get accountability from the employer? Well, that's the long and short of the proposal. Now, that's with the caveat that there is nothing on paper So we just have to go with what Mitch McConnell and others are saying. And they are saying that they want to immunize businesses from liability for coronavirus-related lawsuits. It's not just workers and consumers who would get the shaft, but it could conceivably extend to other types of claims, for example, civil rights claims or environmental claims. And you claim that a business has been polluting and not following proper regulations. And they can say, well, I'm sorry, like you can't sue us because this is coronavirus related. So it is a sweeping proposal, both in the breadth of what it would do, but also in the sense that it would paper over the laws of all 50 states. Wow. Well, if the notion is that we should just trust companies to do what's right, don't we already have evidence that that doesn't work? Exactly. Uh, Just this week, we've seen data that infection rates are increasing in meatpacking plants. We now know that almost 40% of all coronavirus deaths are 
from nursing home residents and workers in those spaces. So a lot of businesses are not doing what they need to do to take reasonable precautions to protect workers and consumers. And that's why we need strong laws on the books. The problem is that we don't, right? The Trump administration has flat out refused to issue any sort of standards that would require businesses to follow as they reopen. So they're refusing to issue those because, you know, the the Trump administration doesn't believe in regulation. So why would they start now? Uh, If you then take away people's rights to go to court as well, then there's absolutely no way to hold bad actors accountable. Well, we've seen a bunch of deregulatory moves recently, and the line seems to be well, companies can't be bothered to follow regulations now because that's holding back the reopening. Well, call me cynical, but it seems like the pandemic is just being used as cover to bring out a, a wish list that they've had for some time now. You couldn't have put it better. I mean, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has been seeking this for years, if not decades. It's really sad that such a powerful organization would use a pandemic simply to get something on their wish list. But Here we are. And that's why we have to fight incredibly hard against these proposals, against any action by McConnell and Senate Republicans. And we have to, you know, make it clear to House Democrats, Speaker Pelosi, to Senate Democrats, Leader Schumer, that people won't stand by and have their rights taken away in a pandemic. And I mean, corporations are pretty protected already, aren't they? I mean, so many have forced arbitration, you know, where you're, you can't really sue them anyway. It seems like it's not even really necessary, frankly. Well, that's right. Uh, it isn't necessary. But just because it isn't necessary doesn't mean that they won't fight for it because, you know, that would mean that they would be completely immunized. You know, workers have a difficult time bringing claims because of, as you said, forced arbitration. But also, almost every state has worker compensation laws, which means that if you get sick, on the job. You have to go through workers' comp. You cannot sue an employer. And so you have those barriers that stop you in your tracks, basically, from being able to sue your employer. And then the final piece is for for everyone, uh, employers and consumers, it would be almost impossible. It'd be incredibly difficult for you to prove that you contracted coronavirus, say, in a store, a Uh, hair salon, dry cleaners, or restaurant. Why? Because under the law, you have to prove causation. You have to prove that this place took unreasonable actions, and you can follow the line from those unreasonable actions to you getting coronavirus. But if states are opening up, as we see opening up too fast and too soon, people are going to, you know, to swimming pools, they're going to dry cleaners and restaurants and movie theaters, there's no way to prove that you got it at the same movie theaters versus the dry cleaners. Right. Or even that you got it in the workplace versus on the bus to work. So, you know, this idea that they need this is just this chicken little notion that they have that the sky is falling when, in fact, uh, it's anything but. Yeah. Well, you have just come from a, a presser, a, a telepresser, I should say, on this issue with Senator Sherrod Brown. Public Citizen has a new report. But tell us how that press conference went. What do reporters want to know about? Well, you know, they, they want to know how serious Republicans are about this, or is this chest something? And, you know, we say that this is, again, the, the Chamber of Commerce 
has been pushing this for 30 years. So they're just pushing every lever and every button to do this. And we walk through step by step the reasons why uh, this is unnecessary and why it would be harmful to workers and consumers. One reporter said that she asked Senator John Cornyn, who is the second in command in the Republican leadership in the Senate, what he wanted to see. And he said that he's for immunizing businesses so long as a business chooses to abide by some sort of health guideline. Hmm. Now, when you say that, you know, if you just say it off the cuff, you go, okay, I guess. But when you know anything about employment law or public health or any sort of law, you see how absolutely ridiculous this is. He's saying, number one, as long as you choose some sort of guidelines. Well, number one, there are no federal guidelines. And then number two, what, are you going to choose state guidelines or local guidelines? Basically, he wants companies to be able to choose the least robust and the least enforceable guidelines that are out there. And then two, he says, well, guidelines, and we have to be very clear, there's a difference between regulations and guidelines. The Trump administration has put out a lot of guidelines saying you may do this or you should do that, but they haven't put out anything that says you must. As workers are going back to work, as we push especially black and brown workers, low-income workers back to work without protections, it's laughable that Senate Republicans are saying we don't need any sort of government standards in place to force businesses to do what's right. We're just going to allow them to do whatever they kind of sort of want to do if they have a moment to take away time from building up their profits. So if people go back into workplaces that aren't safe and they get sick, besides the harm that's done to them, I mean, won't that ultimately slow the economic recovery that this is all supposedly aiming for? I mean, that's the reason why this is just so ludicrous when you scratch the surface. Consumer confidence is at an all-time low. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said a week or two ago that he's convinced that the economy will not get back up and running until there's consumer confidence. Well, guess what won't instill consumer confidence? A law that immunizes businesses if they don't do what's right to keep people safe. Why in heaven's name would I decide to go back to restaurants and movie theaters if they have no incentive to do the right thing to keep me safe? Well, we already have seen workers who complain about health risks or unsafe workplaces being punished for that by their employers. So you wonder how you can turn around and say, but we should still trust those same employers to protect workers without the possibility of any legal pushback. Right. We've seen workers try to say something. It's easier when you have a union. People who don't, they submit whistleblower complaints, and sometimes those are successful and and sometimes they're not. We've seen some workers in local unions go out on wildcat strikes, which are strikes that aren't authorized by the union itself, to protest some unsafe conditions. And again, we've seen a lot of these localized unions are mainly black and brown people, recent immigrants, and they don't have as big of a bully pulpit. Make no mistake, people are complaining. People are shouting. People are trying to sound the alarm the question is, are we going to listen to them? And are we going to stand up for the people who have essentially been keeping our economy running while we have all been staying home? Right. And I keep saying workers, but 
Colleges want immunity. Nursing homes have immunity, which is already an issue. So it really is everyone that is ultimately affected by this. This is a societal issue. Obviously, we think first and foremost about workers and consumers, but soon, I mean, we already are starting to think about what this means uh, for students going back. Just think about it. A dorm is like a cruise ship on land, right? And if you're not willing to go on a cruise right now, we need to think really carefully about what that means for our dorm. And so for schools to be saying we want to immunize ourselves for not taking the reasonable cautions we should be taking is crazy. You know, ensuring that we protect our seniors and others living in long-term care facilities. Remember, long-term care facilities are not just for seniors, but they're for people living with disabilities and others. Make no mistake about it. The nursing home lobby is one of the most powerful lobbies in this country. And they have been systematically going from state to state to immunize themselves. And, you know, they've been successful, but they've also hit some roadblocks. New York recently gave them immunity, but now there's pushback. And some legislators are thinking about how they're able to roll that back Mm -hmm. because they're seeing how much is happening in nursing homes. 40% of all deaths from residents and, and workers. And why should they be immune from accountability. So stay tuned. There's a lot going on both on the federal level, but because Chamber of Commerce is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful lobby in this country, and they have a massive amount of resources, and they are going from state to state if they possibly can uh, to try to get their wish for immunity. Well, we will stay tuned. Um, Let me just ask you, finally, I was disturbed to read Nancy Pelosi not saying a strong no on this, at least back in May. We have no red lines, she said. The public, unsurprisingly, hates the idea, polling shows, of corporate immunity. But if it winds up being part of a stimulus bill that has other things that people want, it might get horse traded into reality, or couldn't it? We are continuing to talk about how important it is to ensure accountability for all people. Like, look, right now, we don't have much accountability when it comes to the stimulus money. There's very little oversight being done there. Um, We have no oversight of the executive branch uh, that the uh, Congress is trying, but the administration is flouting everything. You know, so the best way that, that we, the people right now, are able to hold people accountable is through the justice system. And so removing that would be incredibly harmful to everyday people. You know, right now we should be, and this is the message, and this is the message that we will continue to talk about. We have to we have to save our economy from another great depression. We need to provide for first responders and teachers. We need to ensure that our uh, unemployment insurance is extended. We need to ensure that everyday people can provide for their families. We shouldn't be talking about immunity. This shouldn't be part of the conversation. We've been speaking with Remington Gregg of Public Citizen. Their new report is called Corporate Accountability, the Next Coronavirus Casualty. You can find that and lots of other work on their website, citizen.org. Remington Gregg, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.